This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield. We're in the middle of our Ramadan series. This is week two of it. This is where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, that's the show more generally. This is the series where we kind of step out of the world for a bit and try to talk about things that are a little bit more enduring. What's that quote from, um, is it Henry David Thoreau who said, don't read the times, read the eternities? We're oh. reading the eternities. The times he was talking about was a newspaper, of course, but the what concept oh my is very God. good. That's Scott Stevens, who's just losing his mind quietly in the corner there. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott, is everything okay? Oh, I mean, just at those moments where I didn't think I could love you anymore. <laughs> you go and do something like this. I mean, quoting Henry David Thoreau back to us. Oh. But what a quote. What a quote. Isn't it great? I mean, I, it came to mind literally as I was saying it. I didn't plan that. But yeah. um, it's the perfect encapsulation, I think, of what this series tries to do and what the show generally tries to do from time to time, mm. but not in a concerted way like this. Yeah, there's one thing here, though, that I feel honour-bound to insert. And that's that I think one of the presumptions of so much modern life, we talked about one presumption last week, uh, which is that uh, all of the forms of relevant morality are basically political. Mm. One well, of the sorry, no, no, that's... That's one of the things that we're the arguing we against. Behave. Yes, yep. uh, and that forms of what might be called morality proper, which I still kind of think is, you know, is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what morality proper might refer to. Maybe we can talk about it. Uh, uh, whereas forms of morality proper are basically, you know, they might be nice for you in the same way that going to the gym might be nice for you or adopting a keto diet might be nice for you or, you know, <laughs> collecting, I don't know, 1980s Hasbro toys might be nice for you, but they're, it's fundamentally irrelevant to the condition of our modern life. I mean, one of the things that we've, I think, argued for over nine years of this show is that there are certain fundamental forms of moral formation, of expressions of, say, moral disposition that are essential, not just nice for you, but are essential to the cultivation of the conditions of democratic life. And I referenced John Rawls last week that without certain dispositions, the lack of those dispositions and, you know, the vices that then uh, end up taking their place or are actively cultivated through our common institutions, things like arrogance and contempt and envy, these are the acids that begin dissolving the social bonds that hold us together and that create forms of restraint and self-limitation at exactly those moments where maybe our institutions have, have nothing to say. Um, Do you know what's interesting hmm. about that, though? Sorry to interject. No, but please. I see why you're tying this to democracy, but at the same time, I feel that limits it. No, no, that, that's right. These, these, these are moral traits that need to be cultivated for the realisation of human moral potential. That's right. And they're just as imperative in an undemocratic environment as they are... Yes in a democratic one. What's interesting is that in some ways the sort of antagonism of democracy or the, the inherent contestation of democracy might make them harder to realise mm. at, at an individual level. Mm. Um, because one of the things democracy does, if, we don't, if you're not very careful about it, uh, and I mean this at an individual level as well as at a social level, if you're not very careful about it, it does lionise a kind of enormous ego. Yeah, nice. It's for me to determine everything. Mm. I am the, you know, my opinion on this matters. And in other words, everything is for me. I'm the sovereign and that I, should, I need to form my opinion that I will then take to the ballot, you know, all this sort of thing. Now, there's another way of doing democracy that isn't about that. Um, but it's not hard to imagine. I don't know. I've only ever lived in democracies. But... It's not hard to imagine how a scenario where politics is taken out of your hands would lead to a different kind of disposition of the ego, hmm. where actually your view isn't so relevant. Now, that could come with all sorts of other problems that, you know, authoritarian government often has. Such as humiliation, so not, resentment and other things. Yes, yes. And, of course, arrogance on the part of the ruler. That's right. So there's all the, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, authoritarianism is a virtuous model or anything like that. But it's interesting how... I guess this is what happens when you try to root morality in politics. You will be disappointed because mm. it will, it'll subvert whatever moral virtues or commitments you're trying to cultivate mm. if you anchor them in politics. They're not political. 
And it is worth pointing out here, incidentally, that one of my favorite poets, W.H. Auden, said quite clearly, and I think incredibly presciently, that in a, an age dominated by the popular press, one of the peculiar forms of arrogance to which the unsuspecting moral self is vulnerable, is easy prey, I think his exact term, is to conflate the democratic self with the public, such that, uh, that when I speak, there is such importance in what I have to say that I speak with the full voice of the public. Yeah. Uh, that my opinions matter so much because my opinions dovetail in the total opinions of the public and thereby we have things like, you know, feeling that one is on the right side of history and that others are on the wrong. Right. Yeah. You know, once I said at a writer's festival, um, I was giving a speech and I, along the way, gave analysis of why writers are such insufferable people. <laughs> I never got invited back to that Did festival, uh, weirdly. But one of the, the reasons I said was that that was the case was that writers very quickly delude themselves into thinking that every thought they have is worthy of publication. Mm, mm, um, and I'm sure the same, you could argue, probably double for broadcasters and so on. So I'm not exempting myself from this. But it's an interesting thing. And I, I've experienced this, you know, occasionally I have a thought and I go, oh, God, where's, where's the home for this thought? Mm. Will it be in a newspaper column? Will it be a Minefield episode? And Can it's I at I that moment, a... Waleed, you're, you're tempted, aren't you, to sign up to Twitter? You're just, you're just itching at that moment to, I know the medium that I can broadcast half-baked yeah. thoughts on. I am <laughs> delighted to be able to say that I have never been tempted to sign up to Twitter. Although I did think once if I did sign up to Twitter, you know what I would do? Is like every Friday I would set an essay topic. <laughs> just let people answer. It would just be a sentence and discuss. But then having seen how Twitter has evolved, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, um, anyway, we're, this is episode two of the, the Ramadan series. Um, if you tuned in last week, you will know that we are going through, there are five uh, episodes in this. Each is organised around a theme. Uh, and each of those is, a, what would you call it, a limb, I suppose, mm, of a a supplication that the Prophet Muhammad made where he asks God to save him or seeks refuge in God from four things. Uh, and these are translations, of course, a heart that cannot humble itself, which is what we did last week, a soul that is never satisfied, knowledge that does not benefit, an eye that cannot weep. But the one we are doing today mm. is really... I don't know how this show is going to go because I remember when I put the list, I thought, how does this become a mm, minefield episode? Yeah. And that is a prayer that is not heard. Yeah. Now, there are some problems with the translation of this. Sure. For two reasons, actually. One is I don't think prayer is the right word, actually. Um, prayer in, in English is a very broad sort of word. We sort of apply it to anything that might be that. In Arabic, and especially in the Islamic tradition, there are sort of two words that get translated this way. One is salat, which has to do with the ritualistic prayer that you would see Muslims do five times a day, and you, you've probably all seen images of this. Mm. The other, which is the word that's used in this particular text, is dua, which is where you call upon God in your own language, in your own words, to ask for and communicate whatever it is that you want. And that's sometimes translated, and I think better translated, as supplication. Mm which is an important difference because supplication makes you a supplicant. So there's already a position of kind of humility that that presupposes. I suppose you could say the true of any prayer, but I think there's just a resonance. There's a nuance there that I think is worth capturing. But the other thing, and I think you'll like this, Scott, this particular narration exists in various forms and in some versions of it. Some narrations, the word that's used is dua, so that's supplication. But in others, it the word that's used is qawl, which means speech, hmm. which then broadens it out. So that would be speech that's not heard. And I suspect the meaning is still tied to the same thing, actually. It's intended there that the meaning is dua, and the fact that that appears in various other transmissions of it tells you that that's the understanding that people had when they passed this on. But nonetheless, that variant in the wording is there, which is, which is I think, really interesting. Mm. But du'a is a really interesting word as well, Scott, because it's the linguistic meaning of it is to call out. That's right. To call upon. And the thing about that calling upon is it sort of implies that the one to whom you're calling is far away or you presume that they're mm. far away. That's right. But the thing about du'a is it, it invites 
tada'a, which means something that descends upon you rapidly. So something that comes at you quickly. So in other words, it's conveying this idea that the distance that you perceive isn't actually really distant at all. There's a closeness. However, there are circumstances in which and conditions in which the way it is done, the person that is doing it, who they are, what they've been, means that that simply falls on deaf ears. It's not like to use a metaphor. It's just la yusma'a is the Arabic. It's not, it's not heard. And here I want to introduce one other um, linguistic shade in the term du'a, and that is that it carries this idea of being an invitation. Hmm. So you can imagine the scenario where you hear an invitation from someone. You, you must have been invited to things where you've just felt no need to respond yeah. because either the person that's giving you the invitation, there's an insincerity to the fact that they're inviting you or they're clearly doing it for purposes that have to do with them and it's not really an invitation for you or something like that. So there's all these shades of meaning that are kind of in it. And I wanted to outline that at the start because I've got a feeling all that will provide many fields in which yes, you'll will. want to play. Oh, this is wonderful. So you know how before some big athletic or physical exertion, one sort of trains and prepares and then carbs up the morning of your <laughs> carbs up. I've not heard that. <laughs> really? Yes, go on. This is the show I've been anticipating from the first moment that we decided to do this series, um, both because of the level of difficulty and potential complexity, but also what initially seems as though it's a kind of rarefied issue, something kind of unusual like prayer, prayer being not a usual form of speech, but a peculiar form of speech. And you've already laid out some of the resonances. Something that therefore it has very, very, very little to do with the rest of the way that we live. Whereas immediately there was something about the prospect of a prayer or a quest, an invitation, a cry for help, uh, a desire for something that is not received, heard, taken up, responded to. There's something about that isn't there that I'll, I'll confess, Waleed, at a very human level, terrifies me. And I said to you, or I wrote to you, that this supplication terrifies me. And you said, why does it terrify you? And I never responded. I hope you That's get- That's how terrified you were. I hope you get the irony of it, by the way. But I didn't yeah. respond. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, good. I didn't respond because I wanted to, to talk about it. Because there, there's something here, I think, that touches on- life at its most basic and our life with others at its most basic. So let's begin with the circumstances under which a call for help, a request for something, a longing for something to be true or an invitation for company. What are the circumstances in which that would not be taken up by the recipient? And I think here we begin getting into really interesting territory. One is that there's a kind of heedlessness to the speech itself. I'm sure you've been in environments, Waleed, where maybe you're speaking to somebody or you're speaking to a group of people and you're trying to articulate or express something that you feel quite convinced about, you think to be morally or philosophically true, but the way that you're conveying it, the metaphors that you're using, the analogies that you're drawing, it's causing not so much incomprehension to the people that you're speaking to, but pain. You haven't judged the audience. There's something that you're saying and you're doing it with, with full conviction, with a full-throated appeal, an attempt to persuade. And what's actually happening is the self is so full there in the speech that it's doing something disadvantageous, even painful to the people to whom that speech is purportedly to be addressed. In other words, there is a kind of fullness of ego, of self, even of passion in the speech that overwhelms the recipient such that it's not simply that it can't be heard, but it can't be received in any other way than in pain. And usually that registers through a wince, a flicker, these little forms of human communication that tell you you're trespassing. There's something here that you're saying that isn't meant to be said the way that you're 
saying it. And this is why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so suspicious about non-proximate forms of human communication. We need the presence of other people so desperately to register, to, to give us the feedback, that moment of reciprocity where it's not just a monologue, but it's really a dialogue where I can pick up. There's something in what I've said that is just not registering, that's having an effect. And I mean, you, you know me well enough to know that part of my personal pathology, this is why I'm still skeptical about the moral status of intention. I might have good intentions, but if the effect of my actions and words is to cause another pain, that for me is almost a nightmare scenario for my life in the world and my contribution to our common life to be one that is non-nourishing that is painful for another person. I find that too hard to bear. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Why do you do this job? Because everything you've just said... Yeah, I know. ...means this is precisely the place you should not be. Yep. And that's why you'll notice my very peculiar patterns of speech, I feel like I'm constantly overqualifying, trying to say something different ways so that what it is that I'm trying to say is is clear. And it's pathetic. Yeah, and that's that's fair enough. Yeah, but why be really. here in the first place? Yeah, you're right. So you, you want proximate forms of communication. Yep. Well, the nature of broadcasting is that it's not proximate. I mean, we like to create the illusion that it is. Right? Mm. But let's just, you know, break the fourth wall for a moment. It It's not. Yeah. This is the construct. We're sitting here in very technically advanced studios talking into metal things that record our voices and turn them into digital things that go out and like it's there's nothing proximate really about it mm. it's one of the amazing things i think about celebrity is it it creates the illusion of a, intimacy a, yeah and yeah. a false proximity which then becomes shockingly real if you ever run into a celebrity <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> they look at you like they don't know who you are for the reason that they don't know who you are mm. and you kind of feel like you know them so you value proximity. This is not proximate. Mm. One of the reasons you value proximate communication is that you can be attentive to the response of everybody, but you can't be in this Yeah, that's scenario. right. That's right. I have no answer, Waleed. I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to resign on no, air. I, just, I know. Well, um, but it is something I'll just say that I, that I agonize about. Um, let me just do one other. So what are the conditions in which speech cannot be heard? Because I, I, I do think the fact that this is prayer, and I really like that you distinguish between the two forms of prayer. One being a form of prayer where the object, the divine, God, consumes the speech. In other words, it's an act of adoration, of entire other-focusedness, mm. other there with a capital O. Um, so there you're not wanting anything, but there's something about the nature of prayer that is a total orientation of the self out of the self. Yep. And, and then there's that other form, which I, I think is probably rightly called a lesser form, which yep. is an orientation to the other, to the divine, but an orientation maybe out of desperation, maybe out of need, uh, seeks something. Um, and and that, that desire could be, and I think we may well talk about this, it may well be illegitimate, ill-expressed, ill-formed, fundamentally egocentric. It could be something that is simply human. I mean, simply human. I mean, none of us, I think, in our hour of need, in moments in extremis, where we've kind of vainly, flailingly called out for help, even if it's simply in the form of why. I don't understand why this is happening. There is already there, and, and in the cognate Hebrew root, and there's already something there that is a questioning and a calling out for help that doesn't necessarily expect a response. Mm -hmm. But I think what's, what's really interesting there is that in both forms, there is an orientation out of oneself. One expects or hopes for a reply, for the other, the reply has nothing to do with anything. It's about the, the integrity, the rightness of the orientation of the self outside of the self. Can I add one nuance to that? Please do. Where you're talking about what you call the lesser, so we'll call that supplication. Yes, thank you. Your description is correct, except where it reaches a higher level. So mm, you can nice. think of it as another Good. thing where actually it's not just about, I don't know, treating God as your ATM. And I want to, I want stuff. <laughs> it's not 
just that, but that in itself becomes an act of remembrance. Mm. So it actually, and I'm not saying everybody would approach it this way, but it gets to a point where it is every bit as other-focused. Yeah. It's, as what you've called it, the higher form. It's a full acknowledgement of the lack of the sufficiency of, or the yes. lack of my self-sufficiency and therefore of, yeah. my, of my fundamental need. Hmm. Yes. And, and, and I, I assume, as I've always discovered whenever we've had these conversations, if there is any resonance here with uh, Hebrew, with Stoic, with Greek, particularly Platonic thought, I would assume that there is a kind of ladder of need. So one might begin by expressing a need for very base needs, the way that an infant does, the way that a child yeah. does. But then as you mature yeah. and as you grow, even your expression of those needs matures so that what you ask for as being a fundamental need that you have mightn't really strike other people as being a fundamental physical need or fundamental bodily need, but is a, in the same way that Simone Weil said, that truth is a need of the soul. The soul mm -hmm. cannot survive in a situation of widespread mendacity and deceit. In the same way, one articulates one series of needs up the ladder such that finally, finally, the soul that asks for what it really needs has also undergone that proper maturation process. Yes. Yep. Nice. I, th I think that's right. Ah, how about hmm. that? Well done. Okay, but here's the moment, I think, where it also gets terrifying. Uh, St. Augustine, who was uh, obviously a Christian theologian, but you know, had these deep, deep, deep influences uh, from Platonic and Aristotelian thought as well. He referred to a life that is no longer, and he referred to this as a deformed life, a corrupted life. Uh, he also refers to speech that is corrupted in this way, interestingly enough. He, and, and the example he gives, by the way, is lying. I'll come back to that in mm -hmm. a second. So he says that a life that is not oriented outside of itself to what one truly needs, and I, mean, I don't think you necessarily have to sort of plug the divine in here, but even if we talk about our fundamental need and the fundamental orientation of our lives towards the needs of others, he says a life that is no longer oriented outside of itself, beyond itself, but rather comes to be self-preoccupied. He uses the lovely Latin description, incrivatus in se, which means a life that is turned in upon itself, a mm. life for whom everything that it does is fundamentally self-referential. And the speech that it engages in is no longer really directed towards other people. It's not really meant to communicate or orient the life beyond itself, mm. but rather it's fundamentally self-serving speech. And what I find so fascinating, Willie, is that in Augustine saying that speech that has turned in upon itself, the paradigm example being deceit. And if we think about deceit as not a form of self-expression where one holds out oneself and invites reciprocity, challenge, interrogation, uh, even knowledge. I mean, self-expression is a way of, you know, I, I want you to know me. I want you to understand me. Um, but what deceptive speech does is it ends up being a form of self-assertion, self-projection. This is the world that I want you to see, a world that has me as its fundamental determinant and has mm. me as uh, the one who sets the parameters for what's true and what isn't. Um, a speech that is deceitful refuses knowledge from other people, instead says, this is the version of myself that I want you to see, that I want you to engage with. And thereby it ends up bending speech around its own will, around its own devices. I think in each one of those examples that we've been exploring, this is speech that is seemingly sent out, and yet it's speech that is not heard. It's speech mm. that invites engagement. Because it's not designed to be. That's heard, right. Really. Yeah. That's why it's a form of self-assertion or self-projection. So these, these are extreme examples, I think. I mean, we would say, you know, arrogance or domineering speech might be forms of this or, or deceptive, mendacious speech. But there's another. Can I, I said last week that I wanted to try to have a little bit of a literary insert here. Um, all of these examples of speech that we've been talking about, I mean, they sound bad. They sound corrupting and corrupted from the outset. But I think what's interesting is that this type of speech where the ego is 
too present. This can also be here in forms of uh, action, in forms of care even, that may well be done with the best of intentions, but that don't involve a sufficient degree of the forgetfulness of the self. Can I, can I read a passage to you? It's, yes. it's it, Okay, I should have actually waited for a response. Uh, this is from one of my favorite novels, and it, it seems to me it's one of the greatest passages in one of the greatest novels ever written. It's uh, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Uh, if you're aware of it, there's a, a highly moral and highly morally developed character at the center of the novel. His name is Konstantin Levin. Um, he loves peasants, even though he's aristocracy because he feels that peasants have so much to teach and he admires their practicality and their way of life and their work ethic. And, you know, his whole life is spent, he wants to know. He wants to know what he doesn't know. It's a crucial moment in the story where he is summoned to return to St. Petersburg from memory to be with his brother, Nikolai, in the final days of his brother's life. He's suffering from tuberculosis. Eleven initially uh, resists his young, beautiful, uh, aristocratic wife, Kitty Shabatsky, from coming with him. Uh, he says that he needs to be present to his brother, but also he wants to protect her from the unsavoriness of the sick room, the possibility of contagion and, and so on. Here's the passage. Constantin Levin did not consider himself wise, but he could not help knowing that he was more intelligent than his wife, Kitty, or from his housekeeper and nurse, Agafia Mikhailovna. And he couldn't help knowing that when he thought about death, he thought about it with all the forces of his soul. He also knew that a great many masculine minds whose thoughts about death he had read had pondered death and yet they did not know a hundredth part of what his wife and Agafia Mikhailovna knew about death. Levin and others, though they could say a lot about death, obviously did not know how to act around dying people because they were afraid of death and certainly had no idea what needed to be done when people were dying. If Levin had been alone now with his brother Nikolai, which was his original intention, he would have looked at him with horror and would have waited with still greater horror, unable to do anything else. Not only that, but he did not know what to say, how to look, how to walk. To speak to Nikolai of things unrelated to his death would seem offensive, impossible. To speak of death, of dark things, was also impossible. To be silent was impossible. If I look, I'm afraid he'll think I'm studying him. If I don't look, he'll think I'm thinking of something else. If I walk on tiptoe, he'll be displeased. If I stomp around, it's embarrassing. But Kitty obviously did not think about herself, and she had no time to. She thought about Nikolai, because she knew something, and it all turned out well. She told him about herself and about her wedding. She smiled. She pitied. She caressed him and spoke of cases of recovery, and it all turned out well, which meant that she knew. What's so extraordinary to me about mm. that, Walid? You know, Levin is a character driven by knowledge. He, you know, it says that he thought about death, what it means to die, with all the forces of his soul. He's not a bad person. No, but yet he knows nothing because he's consumed with himself. Yes! And, yeah. and even his ego, his... How will this sound? How will it look? How will it look if yeah. I do this? How will... His ego is at the center of even his attempts to offer care to his brother. Whereas what makes Kitty's act of care not just pure but effective, or genuine act of care rather than its counterfeit, is her capacity for self-forgetting. Her ability... Self yeah, self-effacement, really. Yeah. Her, her ability to be in the presence of this living corpse of Nikolai Levin and to be wholly oriented in her mm. being towards the care of Nikolai himself. I, I find that and its resonances with speech with others in our common life, I find that instructive and profound and I think in every way a moral challenge to the way we live. And yeah, if we pull on the thread of invitation as one of the meanings of Dora, I think that's because an invitation from her 
as against an invitation from him mm. is a very different thing. Mm, I think that's right. And you respond differently because yes. one's not about the person issuing the invitation. Mm. Beautifully said. All right. It's time for a guest, Scott. Our guest is a great friend of this show, and she's probably wondering, what the hell have I gotten myself in for? Uh, Stephanie Collins is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University. She is someone we admire and love, and it's her wisdom, I think, and her attentiveness to the conditions of our common life that have always most moved and touched me. And well, uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great, great topic this week to talk about. Are you put off yet? You're not put off. Oh, I'm not. I've been taking notes. Oh, I've, been, I've, I've got to get this quote from Canton here. Well, I mean, yeah, no, Scott, I'm... I reckon we should just get Stephanie <laughs> to keen. read out her notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to proceed from here. I mean, just, just, to, just to sort of provide a platform for you, Stephanie, I think one of the things we haven't mentioned here, uh, we've alluded to it, but we do kind of think of prayer or supplication as a rarefied or particular form of speech that doesn't have much to do with other forms of speech. But it's always struck me that when Simone Weil and Iris Murdoch picked this invitation up, when Simone Weil wanted to describe what does it mean to truly be attentive to the moral reality of another human being or the moral reality of nature, for instance, she said, pure, unmixed attentiveness is called prayer. I think there's something, there's something there that's that's worthy of being drawn out. We're not talking about simply rarefied or experiences or forms of speech that are of a different order altogether, but rather we're talking about a way of comporting oneself towards others that is, if you like, the moral standard, the litmus test, a mode of self-forgetting or self-abnegation and the ability to not be guided by ego in the way that we speak to and care for others. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, absolutely right. One of the one of my notes <laughs> that I wrote down while while you both were talking, I can't remember which one of you said it, but one of you said um, this idea of a prayer that um, that's not heard and the kind of the request to be saved from such a prayer. The idea behind that, it seems to me, at least one of the ideas behind that is this acknowledgement of my fundamental lack of self sufficiency. Mm. It's one of you put it. Mm. This kind of this interconnectedness, and this comes through in your in your example from from Anna Karenina. You know, that it's not about me. This is about my interconnectedness um, with others. And now I'm going to mention the Kant quote that I just yes, found because we're into the notes <laughs> because I've mentioned it already, and <laughs> so I can't. You know, I've got to, got to say what it was. So I think there's something in this the supplication that you know, save me from a prayer that is not heard. That um, that actually runs counter to quite a strong tradition in Western moral philosophy of centering the agent when it comes to trying to orientate wow. ourselves ethically. So wow. so the, the, the Kant thing that I'm thinking of here is here's this famous quote, uh, the goodwill shines like a jewel for its own sake as something which has its full value in itself. Mm. And I think I think you, we can see this, the supplication that saved me from a prayer that's not heard. It's kind of pushing back against that Kantian idea, right? It's not about my will. It's not about, it's not about what I intend. It's not about my motives. You know, your example from Anna Karenina shows this, right? It's not, you know, Levin has a perfectly good will, but that's not enough, actually, when we're trying to orientate ourselves towards the world and towards others. Um, the goodwill, yeah, maybe it shines a bit like a jewel, but we need we need something else as well. <laughs> it needs to be supplemented with a more other-oriented um, kind of ethic that acknowledges that my motives are, are insufficient on their own um, to, I don't know, uh, respond <laughs> to to the world as I find it. Um, so that, that that's one of that's one of my notes. I love. It was that was the main one. It sounds like there are good notes, Scott. <laughs> but There's I think. But what, what's yeah. so interesting here, though, Stephanie, is that okay. This is something that Waleed constantly pushes back against me with whenever we talk about sort of intention, its relevancy or irrelevancy. We're not necessarily having that conversation here. But you know, Waleed has said, you know, surely, good intentions, the right orientation of the self, that they're not just doing this for vainglory, for instance. Surely that's preferable to base intentions or hypocrisy. But I think I just, I've always had this difficulty with Kant. The idea that the best of intentions or the goodwill is what fills up the moral act, which gives it its crown, its beauty, its light or its integrity. 
this is where I've always had the issue. Because, I mean, one of the things that you've taught me, for instance, Stephanie, and that's central to the whole tradition of care ethics, is that a form of action, a form of speech, isn't complete, not only until it's received by the intended recipient, but when that recipient also ends up, if you like, redeeming or ennobling reciprocally the person who has provided the act of care or have been present in the moment of need such that even their self-sufficiency, namely the agent, the primary agent in the first place, is called into question. That, that what goes on then with this fundamental act of reciprocal caring uh, is the demonstration of the deeper interdependence uh, that's there in our lives together and in our givenness to one another to care, to respond, to be present. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. So, I mean, yeah, thanks for mentioning care ethics because it, it's, it's what I often reach for in these kinds of conversations and it's what I wanted to reach for now as well to contrast with the Kantian idea, right? Um, the care ethical relational idea is exactly one in which I cannot care for you. My, my care is not real care. It hasn't succeeded as care unless you respond in the right way. Um, and there's a, a very influential um, care ethicist, Joan Tronto, uh, works in the United States. Um, she distinguishes between four phases of care. So she talks about there's the first phase, caring about someone or something, where you kind of see that there's a need in the world, you notice it. Some people fall down at that hurdle, right? I, I often fall down at that hurdle. I'm no, no moral saint, right? But that's important. Kant's going to be like, yep, he's going to agree that's important. Uh, taking care, where you kind of take responsibility for meeting the need, you take it upon yourself to do something. Again, everyone can agree that's important. Um, third, caregiving, where you actually take actions to fulfil the need that you've now taken responsibility for. Again, that's important. Um, but there's this final phase that Toronto focuses on and that a lot of recent work in care ethics has kind of emphasised and taken up, which is this idea of care receiving, that the kind of process of care isn't complete until the care recipient acknowledges and responds. And I don't mean to... I don't mean to sort of totally malign Ken. I'm not saying he, there's no space, but he would say we need to respect others as ends in themselves. And maybe part of that is acknowledging that the care recipient is an end in themselves. And he can maybe make some room for it somewhere, but it's not, it's not really centred in the way that it is in care ethics. And to bring, to bring this back as well um, to something that you were saying at the very beginning about democracy and the role that this has in politics, I, mean, I think we can see this playing out in very practical debates that are being had now about aged care and the design of aged care and kind of bringing in residents and aged care homes as kind of co-designers or co-creators of policy for how aged care homes are running. That would be an example of care receiving, of that final phase of care really kind of coming out and, and happening appropriately. So, Where's the room in that, by the way, for the cantankerous recipient who... Can we, we know these people, right? They're, they are just difficult and no matter what you do, they will somehow be offended by it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of the key distinctions, I think, between what we're talking about and what the original text is talking about, where it's talking about a supplication to God who, by definition, is not one who receives supplications that way. Right? Yeah. So this is an important distinction. But just to play with the care ethics you're talking about there, yeah. what are the limits of, of this? That's a great question, and I don't. There's no easy answer. There's no general answer that can mm. be given. It's going to be very contextually dependent, I think, and kind of rightly so. Um, I think <laughs> the cantankerous care recipient is. I suppose what care ethics would say is that that's that's not someone upon whom your will should necessarily be imposed, mm. right? So, on the one hand, um, we're not saying the care recipient is kind of the, the absolute final arbiter of, of whether care is good because um, there can be, you know, problems with giving care recipients too much power in that regard. You don't want, you need to have a balance, right? Mm. You need to have a balance. Um, but as someone who's, you know, going out like Levin and the, and the Anna Karenina, someone who's sort of going out trying to make the world better for others, you don't want to write off the cantankerous recipient, I guess. <laughs> um, so so sure. don't, don't write them off, um, yeah. but also neither, um, neither kind of, yeah, give them full power to determine. Well, it's more the self-flagellation. Um, so I could see... Whoa, I could... hang on. Oh, geez, I just, sorry, I slipped on a mine there. I didn't realise. No, well, sorry. I think you're both, I'm sorry, with greatest respect to two of my favourite people in this world, I think you're missing something absolutely fundamental 
Um, and I'll, I'll confess that there's, I mean, this is a little bit personal. I, mean, I used to do quite a lot of work within aged care. And I mean, one of the extraordinary things is we seem to think far too often that there's a certain class of people for whom everything must be done and that what they most basically need are their most basic needs. And as long as we're kind of doing that, then, okay, what have you got to complain about? For the truly cantankerous, what do they need? I mean, what is their cantankerousness? What is their complaint, their inability to find anything satisfactory? What is that an expression of? And far too often, what that's an expression of is something that takes at a tremendous amount of time, namely the ability for somebody to be there and simply take the hits. They don't want a response to their complaint. They want an ear mm. to which, and, and, and there's something about that, that the, the telos of that act of complaining, the telos isn't, okay, I need to find a solution to your complaint. The telos is I'm here and we're together and I'm not going anywhere. And whenever you need to complain, I'll be here. In other words, it tends to be the expression of what we refer to as we relate as kind of a deeper need of, of relationality, of a form of relationship that's not utilitarian, uh, that's not based on the use value of this person to the other, but simply someone who is in need of someone to complain to. Can I flip this around then, though? Would you say that their need, that their speech, is bent back upon themselves and that therefore doesn't reach the ear. Quite possibly, but that doesn't mean it can't be redeemed. Okay. One, of, one, one, of the, one of the things about, oh my God, I can't believe where we're going with this. I mean, one of the things that I've always loved best in the Jewish theological tradition, especially in the traditions of the Hebrew Bible, is the way that the most vicious, vile, seemingly anti-theistic complaints that are let loose by characters like Job, like the prophet Jeremiah, these very complaints that would seem on their surface to be defiant, even blasphemous, are then folded back into the tradition as being expressions of a kind of, of a profound form of longing for, if not the divine, then at least for something like capital J justice. In other words, there's something about the complaint itself that can still reach the ear and can still be redeemed if given the proper amount of time and attentiveness. Does that, does that kind of make sense? It makes sense to me. I think there's, um, it's actually important when we're thinking about this idea of a prayer that's not heard and we're bringing it out of theology and yeah. interpersonal relations, right? We all play the God role <laughs> as in we're not just prayer makers. We're also prayer receivers, right? And prayer hearers. Um, so with the kind of examples you're talking about, I kind of want to say, well, it's up to other people whether some prayers are heard. So take the cantankerous recipient of care, right? Is their speech turned upon themselves? Well, not if the rest of us respond to it correctly. Mm, not, right. if, not if the that's rest right. of us hear that prayer or hear that supplication um, as what it is. And I take a point from early, earlier, Scott, that often it's a matter of, of being present um, and taking the hits, if you like, from other people. Uh, I suppose where I would hesitate is in assigning um, the assignment of, if you like, moral value or some kind of positive valence to an action of mine, that shouldn't depend upon, that shouldn't depend just upon the attitudes of the person mm, who's right. complaining at me or whatever, right? That's what I would want to resist. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, but absolutely, we can, we can in some ways ensure that others' speech isn't turned back upon itself by, by being a, a good listener, um, by hearing those quote unquote prayers uh, mm. appropriately. Um, look, something that, uh, I just want to pick up something that we talked about last week where we're talking about a heart that cannot humble itself. And if you like, the social status of feeling that one has to be right, uh, of not being able to humble oneself in the face of what one does not know. Um, one, one of the things that, I mean, certainly within the Jewish tradition, will lead from what I've learned from you from the Islamic tradition, but you see this fully in the work of someone like, say, Iris Murdoch, uh, drawing as she does on on, on Plato, um, that one of the things that gets most powerfully in the way 
of our ability to truly be attentive to the world and therefore to be drawn outside of ourselves. One of the things that prevents the ego from being eclipsed and for our vision and our speech really to be fully oriented towards another moral reality is the feeling of injury to the ego or the fear that the ego will somehow be injured or demoted, that I'll be humiliated or embarrassed. And it just struck me, uh, I was rereading, as I try to do around this time every year, Iris Murdoch's uh, Sovereignty of Good. She has this extraordinary example towards the end of her, her second uh, essay, where she says, imagine this, I'm stewing over some injury to my ego, some slight that I've experienced, a bad review. And she says, I'm sitting at my window, consumed with the self. And looking out of my window, I see a kestrel gliding on the breeze. And then suddenly I'm drawn entirely outside of myself and onto this that doesn't exist for me. But rather, my attentiveness now exists for it. I'm drawn out of myself by the beauty of this bird. She says, when I then return to the ego, to this apparent slight, it doesn't really matter as much anymore takes on a different valence. And I just wonder, you know, we're talking about these two forms of speech or these two forms of care. One is full of ego and the other is an expression of ego forgetting. Uh, so one being Levin, the other being Kitty Shabatsky. Um, there's something here, isn't there, about these disciplined practices of tuning one's attention fully outside of oneself. I mean, this is something that has to be cultivated, doesn't it? Whether we're talking religiously or, or philosophically. And I just wonder, I mean, isn't the best way of thinking about those forms of speech that aren't full of ego, rather talking about or trying to imagine those forms of speech that are so fully oriented towards others, towards the moral reality, of the world and those within it, uh, that it then kind of, if you like, it relativizes the ego. It simply makes the ego and its intentions or its failures not as important anymore. That's ultimately, isn't it, what we're talking about? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think in short, yes. Um, the Kestrel example is interesting, right, because the Kestrel, there's no interaction going on there. She's just looking at it. It's out there. It, it kind of, at least from her perspective, is self-sufficient. I mean, of course, it's not. It's an animal mm. like the rest of us. <laughs> um, but it's separate but it's, from it's separate. her it's, universe. It's not. Yeah. yeah. And it she's has, not, it has no use value. It. There's so, no relationship of use value or of, or, or, or of utility. Certainly it has no use of her. Yes. It has no use for her. And perhaps she has no use for it except, you know, I mean, it's, it's helping her sort of bring her own woes into perspective or something, but she's not kind of um, intentionally using it for that purpose. But there's no, let me put this, they're not sort of building a world together, mm, <laughs> her and the okay. kestrel. Yeah. Um, so I think there is, there is something in that image of how she interacts with the kestrel there. But when we're thinking about, if we're thinking about this idea of um, the supplications that we make towards other people, the supplications that we make in politics, that we make in our personal lives, the way that we interact with others, there's... When we do this, when we make prayers to others or hear others' prayers, we're, we're building a world together. We're building um, a political, social, moral life or even a private sphere kind of life. And I, I think you can't get rid of, you can't get rid of our, our separateness entirely, would probably be my view. So we're, we're no. related. There's kind of this tissue between us and, and that tissue needs to be attended to. But it's not a complete uh, foregoing of, of, of the self or the no. self and other. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're obviously right, Stephanie. I wasn't meaning for there to be that kind of separate. I mean, what you're describing, in fact, is what Martin Buber called the movement from communication to communion, um, where, yeah. where what begins as interaction, what begins as reciprocity, then becomes something enduring. It mightn't even be a relationship, but it is an acknowledgement of, of mutual need. I guess what's operative there in the middle of it, though, is the eclipse of, to use the term that we used last week, Walid, the eclipse of the social fate of the self, um, the eclipse of my concern with my appearance, with my reputation, with my, my interests, my, my, my interest or, or the credit that I get. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I, the reason I use the word interest is I think that enlarges the... So 
as, as we've been discussing this, the kind of speech, or you could even say supplication, that has been reverberating around my mind has been lobbying. So when, you know, well, you pick, I'm not going to mention a lobbying group because then it becomes political. But, but the job of a lobbying group is to put the case to the public for something that's in their own interest. Yeah. And how do we hear those interjections or those contributions to public debate? Well, we hear them in a tainted way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't hear them at all because we may not agree. We're likely to hear them if we agree with the advocate's position beforehand. We're likely not to hear them if we don't. We're not likely to be persuaded by them because we presume the self-interest. That is, this is a speech that's bent back upon itself. So that what you say there about preserving reputation, et cetera, et cetera, yes, that's a form of self-interest. That's a form of speech being bent back upon the self. But interest as, a, as an idea, I think, captures mm, it even more. Reputation is an interest among interests. Yeah, you're right. You're right. If you know what I mean. Mm, that's yeah. absolutely right. We're just about out of time, but I'm going to give you the final word. Stephanie, is there anything in your little, um, what did you put your notes that you were taking, the quote book you've got there? <laughs> yeah, I've just been nodding, jotting, jotting down names. Um, final word, I, I actually, I think this is difficult, right? So just final word would be complete foregoing of the self or the ego leads to people not standing up for their own rights, right? And their own, and, and not kind of requiring that other people give them the kind of the respect and the the listening that they deserve. So, I guess that. Well, I does, I, I does it of, mean that actually? So it, it I can. think I think it's possible for justice to be a focus that is not necessarily connected to the self. Yeah, it depends what we depends what we think justice is. I mean, I suppose you're right. A, a rights based conception of justice is very. Kantian, for example, right? Um, certainly very Western, very individualized, so on and so forth. But I would hesitate, actually slightly for feminist reasons, I would hesitate to say, oh, everyone just, you know, completely abnegate the self, um, mm. you know, just listen to others, uh, the self is nothing. Because, of course, the, the people who are most likely to listen to that <laughs> and actually do it are, are the very people mm. in society mm, who we true. might think, no, 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 stand up for yourself, <laughs> mm. right? Um, I think it's, it's no it's no coincidence that Levin is, is, is male and Kitty is female. Yes, that's right. right. So, so um, not, not mean to make it too political. But uh, I think to have as a kind of uh, universal blanket principle, don't make speech that's about you or don't be egocentric or something like that. Um, not everybody needs that particular correction in their comportment in the world. So it's a good thing to keep in mind, but it's mm. definitely not the be all and end all. Wonderfully said. Yeah. Stephanie, thank you. No doubt we'll see you again. I hope so. Yes. Stephanie Collins, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University, our guest for this week, being the second in our Ramadan series for this year on The Minefield. We'll see you next week with number three. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.